1: Welcome to Resiliency Within featuring your host Elaine Miller karris In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Carris.
2: Welcome to Resiliency Within. I want to also remind our listeners today that we are live streaming on Facebook at Resiliency Within. So, my goodness, this week has been a hard week for many people across the country, as we have, you know, yet again, have been dealing with another tragedy of another mass shooting, and not to mention the violence that happens every day in cities across America. But serendipitously today, my guest is Dr. Jay Baruch, a practicing emergency room physician and professor of emergency medicine at Brown University's Alpert Medical School, and the author of two award-winning short fiction um, collections, What's Left Out and 14 Stories, Doctors, Patients, and Other Strangers. But his new book just came out in August 2022. 20, it's called Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. One of his uh, reviewers of his book said, this is a book with huge empathy and compassion. It builds a bridge between doctor and patient, writer and reader. So I really encourage you all to go out there and um, get this book. We've had a conversation before we've started today, and I am quite excited about him sharing his perspectives, and his wisdom. I was saying to him that I think he has a lot of wisdom, and then he shared with me that he's been doing this for 30 years, so I know that he has a lot of wisdom. But I think that, you know, many of us who've had um, experiences in the emergency room, either as patients or myself as a social worker who worked in the emergency room, we've seen where so many tragedies are seen every single day. And there's people like Dr. Baruch, and I'm sure the amazing team that he works with, that day in and day out are not um, see the windstorms and the storms of life. So he has a really wonderful perspective about how to meet people with what's happening to them. What are the stories of their heart? How does he help them? And knowing that many, do, many people do come in with serious physical injuries, but many people come in because yes, maybe they have a physical problem, But they've also had years of perhaps an addiction to a drug, social problems, um, being unhoused, the many things that happen to people that end up showing up in the emergency rooms all over the United States. So I want to just start out by saying thank you so much for being here today with me. And um, as we get started, I'm just going to ask you kind of my first question is what is on your mind as we get started today?
3: First of all um thank you so much for having me Lane it's a great honor to be here with you and your your viewers and your listeners um you know what's on my mind is always sort of a complicated question
2: <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> probably that's why I asked you the question so it's not
3: it's not always great being inside my mind I know'm I'm, I'm with me all the time and it's not always a pleasant place um or it's a confusing place uh, I you know i i it's it's, it's it's interesting because i'm a couple of days of not working in the emergency department and and so that's always an interesting time to sort of take a deep breath um when you sort of catch up on some sleep uh because you know i'm aware of like the challenges that you know our system is facing um like the crowding problems we're all facing and the the big challenges that Doctors and nurses and hospital systems uh, are facing trying to care for uh, you know a sick population while there's terrible crowding issues and there's an increasing number of of people who have left medicine during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so you know these are really you know fascinating and concerning and worrisome and potentially exciting times if we can use that as agents for change. Um, But those are some of the things that I've been thinking about lately.
2: Well, you know, having been involved in healthcare for most of my adult life, those are concerns that I have, too. And so maybe that brings me to a question, knowing that you have just lived through, you know, a number of years with the pandemic um, with people that I'm sure are very dear to you saying, I can't do this anymore leaving the profession, how do you yourself um, handle those stresses that come at you? And what does keep you going? Or I guess what helps you get through um, when you are faced with all these things that you just mentioned? Yeah.
3: I, I don't have one clear answer in saying this is what I'm doing because because I've been, there. Were, there have been periods when I've been, very resilient, I think, you know, um, and there've been times that I've just been feeling a little overwhelmed and, um, and felt kind of powerless and demoralized. And then I feel resilient again. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote a, a piece recently that was published in stat, um, uh, that was, that I, that chronicled an interesting moment um, in the middle of the pandemic for me was after the second wave when I uh, I wrote my letter of resignation from medicine. And um, and something curious happened when I, as soon as I wrote that letter and made my intention that I was sort of figuring out, like I just wrote it just to see if, just to see how it feels. and. Do I really mean it? And and there were tears, you know. I was like I was it was more, more than just an exercise for me, though I thought it was playing an exercise after a particularly terrible difficult shift. And I was sitting in the car before my shifts, like really trying to muster the energy to get out of the car. And um and as soon as I wrote my letter, I started looking at what I was doing differently. And the surprising part. Of that story is that as soon as I wrote my letter, I, I I kind of I found, yeah, I thought it was my ticket out of medicine, and it ended up hooking me, hooking me back in, because I started paying attention to all those meaningful moments that were there all along, but when you're so consumed by the obstacles and the challenges, and when you're just sometimes it's tough to get past. The ways there are many ways you're sort of letting patients down because the system is not allowing you to do the things that you need to do the morally right things to do the basic human things um you still it's easy to forget that there are that there are really are important meaningful moments of connection that happen um if you just pay attention to it uh and so that was an interesting that that's my convoluted
2: No, I don't think it's convoluted at all, because it sounds to me that we all need, I think, times those reflective moments, especially during those times when things are so overwhelming, and we've seen so much suffering and struggle. And sometimes there's an illumination that comes from that, exactly what you described. And I I often say on the show, you know, with all the suffering, what else is true? And it almost sounds that's what those little moments that can come through where you remember that kindness or that person who you did help or that person where you held their hand when they were taking their last breath and those moments that can make a huge difference of why, if we've chosen this, this field of healthcare, the reasons why we keep, we keep doing it.
3: And, and, and as you know, like, so much of what we do is very complex. You know not like it's hard, it's complex and that and what I did, and for example, like in that piece, when I wrote my letter i and I was trying to analyze like, well God, what are those things that I was paying attention to now that I wasn't paying attention to before, and what
2: what I, were they? I'm so curious well, to find out what those are
3: well the the truth is is that there are no easy narratives, right? I think in medicine, we like to have our neat narratives like. If there's um there's triumph over adversity, right? Like if you can, you know, we, we take care of patients with a certain narrative in mind, which is like we wanna cure you or we'll find the answer, which is great if that's possible. But if we only think in that mindset, then it sort of pushes out all the other possible narratives and experiences that patients have that perhaps require a different type of understanding. Uh, and a different model and a different approach to their stories that they're telling. Um, so what I found out in that particular situation is that oftentimes the very moments that were most meaningful were tied inextricably were tied together with moments that were also just difficult. Yeah. And for an example, what I wrote about was we had a we had a uh, an older gentleman who came in in cardiac arrest and we we're and we we're doing CPR on him and you know um and his family was coming in towards the end of end of that of that process and this was you know a time when the pandemic when you know the er's were were crowded it was terrible crowding probably had no place to put people and so outside this room this particular critical care bay there was just sort of the in an area where we just keep patients from were coming in from the ambulances and, and there was a there was three of our um patients who were you know unstable housing alcohol problems very very intoxicated and very loud and and when we called the call the the code um and uh, and we stood at this bridge where lives end that's so powerful Yes, with this family and the team stood with the family to honor this life that was lived and is no longer in this solemn silence we then hear these you know <laughs> these three we have our regulars y- yapping away and so in one way in one In one sense it was embarrassing and we were ashamed by it because you know you you have a chance to die once and you know respect and duty um to this patient and his family they deserved a little better yeah but at the same time you know we're probably the closest thing to family that these three other (laughs) these three (laughs) gentlemen are you know and we're serving a vital role because If there was another place to bring them if society had other options um they would be there so like the open door of the er like that moment for me as i wrote you know like these are reasons why we get i would get out of the car and and the reason and reason why i would sit in the car and not want to get out but also the reasons why you get out yeah
2: and i think Uh, it's i think it's important for people to know that In the emergency room, oftentimes you have people that come that are really our frequent flyers and that we get to know them. You know, the emergency room kind of becomes their family, whether they're uh, warmly welcomed or not. That's what happens. And sometimes, as you say, they're the only uh, you're the only availability to a lifeline where they can get some help because of the way the system is put together.
3: Right. So that's the open door. You know, we're open door 24-7. So. You know, like those, that's the moral place of the emergency department. You know, it's by, by, you know, by, by the rules of Mtala, like we have to see everybody who comes in and get evaluated. Um, and And there is a moral mission behind this space. Because of that, you know, it tries to be a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, I always I read something years ago, which always stuck me when I stuck Mm -hmm. with me when I was a a young, uh, young resident in emergency medicine. It was this obscure article that described the emergency department as like this quasi public space in the hospital, (laughs) which I love. I I still love that idea. Um, And it is like this quasi public space, which, of course, means it's open to everyone. It's a safety net but also at this time getting back to your earlier question lane you know now it's it's being leaned on to as a last resort or to answer a lot of system problems and as we're discovering it's 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 breaking
2: yeah and i mean you wonder how is it going to end and and but i guess the other thing as i'm thinking about when you're talking is that you help people through uh, through journeys you know maybe you can talk about it, you know maybe it's a narrative but it's really a journey a journey to maybe finding a way to get housing maybe um a journey to say i think you know we've done everything that we can for your mom and there's not one more thing we can do and you have that son who's saying but please please i don't want her to die i don't know if you can maybe share some of your your memories or some of the patients that you have that you have cared for that you think are important for us to know about the journeys of their life and, and perhaps your, your journey with them in the healthcare team.
3: Yeah, sure. You know, I, I will say that, you know, I, I went to, you know, I went into medicine. I went to medical school as, you know, as someone who I went to college to be a writer, to be an English professor. Um, So, you know, I, I entered the field of medicine with sort of a love of story and a love of narrative and, and experiences with talking with patients as an undergrad when I had (laughs) no experience whatsoever, but it also liberated me to be able to just talk to them. Um, And it felt like a real privilege to be, for people to talk to you and share their inner thoughts and and their hopes and their dreams and their fears. And it felt like a totally different way to impact and to interact, engage with people's stories that were less abstract, in my i was doing in my work undergraduate major though i loved it because what is better training for a physician especially emergency physician i think personally (laughs) i'm conflicted um in in that reading some of the most complicated characters in literature and realizing that people are complex and they're well-rounded and they're not all one thing that they can be great and they can be terrible and they can be you know generous and they can be selfish um they could be all these things and be them you know um they defy easy characterization that's what all great characters are and I have to tell you you know and I mean this with the greatest respect for my patients but so many of my patients are great characters you know that deserve equal amount of examination. They deserve an equal amount of empathy, um, and and as you said, Elaine, they're part of a larger story.
2: Yeah.
3: Right. And so, for example, one of the instances I, I write about in the book, and you you brought talk about to sort of the end of life, was this woman who was brought in. Um, gasping for air. She had end-stage cancer, gasping for air. And we were told that she had, she was, she did not seek to be resuscitated. She had, she was doing, you know, uh, and, and I was grateful because she would have been a, uh, because of, she was a very, she was, she had, she was very, very sick and time was of an essence. And from what I was being told, I don't think like intubating her, getting an airway on her, and resuscitating her was going to stop the process of leading right. to her eventual death. Her son, who was there, you know, apparently wanted everything done. You know, it's a situation that we don't I've, that we see I've not uncommonly.
2: Yeah, I've seen it many um, times.
3: Right, and, and then you just sit there and you go. So what do you what do you do? Like is it there's a, so many we can attack this from a from the the more this there's so many there's so many ethical questions that come up with this, right? We don't have the paperwork that she's that she actually articulated these these things. She said she would they actually said she was supposed to be in a hospice, but there was no hospice paperwork. Um and the
2: system, the system he's like oh my do gosh. everything. And I
3: was explaining exactly what do everything was going to mean. And and it and requires like a certain amount of burdens and pain and potentially you know some harms to her in order to get an airway to if we had to do recess, you know, compressions on her, we break ribs. Um, and so we eventually intubate in the end, we ended up intubating her. And um, and one of the reasons why she was her she was so confused and she was not she was not doing so well, um, and she was an extremist was the fact that her CO2 a carbon dioxide level was so high in her bloodstream and sometimes once you breathe down breathe it breathe allow the patient to breathe it off they could become more awake and alert she became more awake and alert her family member who came a daughter who was who was the decision maker for her also wanted everything wanted everything done and then when she became more awake and alert she she, she wanted the tube removed and she died and And it's amazing the narratives that we bring to a situation right and how that often is not what is actually happening you know so we look at this as like what are you what are you doing this is not going to help your mom she did not want to die this way always we think what we heard she didn't want to die this way um and what i read in the medical record during that little period when i had a break was the fact that she she understood her prognosis her family had a tough time adjusting to it um which we don't see um this is not an uncommon occurrence not an
2: uncommon occurrence no
3: but what's interesting yeah. though Elaine is the fact that they loved that they loved her mom. her mom had like worked several jobs had cared for them and they just you know they not just, not not only weren't they they feel like they weren't they weren't ready But there's a fundamental difference between dying, they knew she was dying, and dying now. (laughs) Yes. Right. And and we get so caught up on sort of the medical aspects of a case and think that the patient, the families perhaps don't understand or a patient doesn't understand when they're making decisions. Without thinking about the larger, you know, the larger issues and the love people have for each other the some people I I have taken I have cared for hospice patients who and another patient I wrote about in the book who saw hospices giving up and they were a fighter all their lives and and it was just the way hospice was framed to them um and I had a patient who years ago I write about who refused DNR though he was he had a very terminal illness and was and was going to die soon and the reason, and he did not want to be resuscitated, but he thought DNR meant that that once he signed that paper, that, that we were going to stop caring for him.
2: That you're going to stop. And that's why the stories are so important, right? And I, you know, I, I'm just, you know, you're really awakening in me some of the so the times I would come into the ER and people would say, oh, this family is being so unreasonable. They don't want to let their, you know, their mom or whoever it is, you know, to go. And she wants to go. And oftentimes I'd go in and talk with them. And it was about those very things or there's more I have to tell her and I haven't had a chance to tell her. And I just I just came in from California and I'm in New York now, wherever it might be, right? And she's got to stay alive so I can tell her what I wasn't able to tell her. Or how many times have you seen where you think, how is this person staying alive? And they're waiting for somebody to come and they see their son, the next breath they're gone. I mean I always think that's so fascinating about how we are constructed as human beings. You know just I don't know if you want to reflect on what I just said.
3: I love that. No, I, I it is and, and and I think the problem is that oftentimes as physicians we focus on purely the medical aspects of a case. Right? And if a and if a family is dis, is making a decision that let's say isn't that the team doesn't think is in the patient's best interest or it seems like they that were they're they're trading on miracles or or they Often oftentimes there are other issues at play right I had I cared for um, I cared for a gentleman whose daughter just wanted things you know wanted everything done and she seemed so reasonable and I went and talked with her and I said to her what do you what do you think is going to ha- what do you think is going to happen um, um and she told me and she knew and I said, You realize that it's not your role to make a decision for your dad your role is to make your decision as your dad like knowing everything that he knows what he values what he considers a good death Um, well if he could wake up at this moment for a second and see his present condition and his prognosis what would you do what would he do and she and she says to me, she goes, he wouldn't want any, he wouldn't yeah, want this done.
2: Exactly. And she goes,
3: and thank you for telling me that. But I have to tell you, it's not just that. And I go, what is it? And she goes, I have brothers and sisters, and they'll blame me if I just let my let dad die. And we hear that too. And it's always about relationships. End of life challenges are oftentimes rooted, not in understanding or misunderstanding of the medical issues, but in the personalities and the relationships and the types of relationships that that family members have had with the loved one or with each other um, that oftentimes factor into the decision.
2: Well, and all those family dynamics play out in the person's dying. And so, you know, imagine how hard that would have been for her if her siblings would have all said, it was your fault, you should have done more and and so what do you do in that situation you try to get the family members there or what do you do
3: i tell i i what i do is i i first of all i i just sometimes just framing it as i'm aware i am aware this is a difficult decision this is a terribly difficult decision and you should know that what happens in these decisions is that i i move on like a, we move on after this like we have patients to see we have a I go not to be cold but it's true like we move on we might live it i think about that night but i go the person who dies is going to die go you're the one and there's literature to support you're the one who's going to live with this decision but just realize it's your role to think as that as your loved one not for that loved one um and i will help you support you in any way like if you want me to talk to your sister or your brother or so and so You know if they have questions for me let's get them on the phone um and oftentimes it's one again like as you know it comes down to being open to different types of communication strategies and thinking about the death or the or the the end of life situation as part of one story as part of a larger web of other stories that you have to acknowledge.
2: I love the way you said that a larger web of other stories because that's exactly what happens. And then you get the you get kind of the microscopic the that um, focused right there at that time of dying, all those things that have happened to that family over over decades. Um, We we have to take a short break. I can't believe we've just gotten started. But we are going to continue our lively discussion, a very poignant discussion with Jay Baruch. And we're going to talk more about his book, which, you know, again, a doctor's tales of constraints and creativity in the ER. So we're going to continue this discussion. And I want to get also some ideas of some other ways that maybe, um, you know, I think people can prepare themselves um, if they face these kinds of things and and also the kinds of things you bring out in the book, why someone should go out and pick it up and and uh, and and read it, because we're just touching the surface, I imagine, of much of the wisdom that you have incorporated into your book. So we will be back in just a couple minutes, and we will continue our conversation.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and in communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information.
4: Elaine Miller-Kerris' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Kerris co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience, awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: Well, welcome back. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Jay Baruch, who wrote a a book called Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Uh, We've been talking about some of his experiences in the emergency room, and he's been sharing some of his wisdom of what he has, um, really what you have done in terms of communicating. And I'm really hearing listening to the story of the patients and the families in order to give them the best care. So it's not only the medical technology, is it, Jay, of what you know how to give, but a huge part of being a physician is really knowing how to speak to people.
3: Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Like I, I always, I always uh, am a little bit queasy when, I, when, I, when we talk about listening, because listening is not just about hearing. Yeah. right um and like one of the some of the what are some of the ideas that i talk about in the in the the stories essays that populate the book really have to do with the fact that you know like like stories are constructed like we when we listen we're constructing knowledge um and and oftentimes what that depends upon is, you know what we're what we as listeners are bringing to the situation so if i'm only listening to for an answer to a problem you know uh or i or i i think i know what the patient has and i'm listening for those details that match that which oftentimes is how we think though we would like to think we think the, the other direction um then that and we do that too quickly um and too early oftentimes that means that we we're closing ourselves off to other details and other information that the patients are, sh- and their, or, and, or their families or friends are sharing with us that really are so relevant. You know, and I feel that some of the, ch- the biggest challenges that I face. Um, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is, is that the public appetite and the public portrayal of the emergency department is oftentimes one that built on life and death drama of heavy beating the big line, and the music in the background um and there's some of that without the music um but the the challenging parts um and what really is um so critical to my work is really getting the getting to the heart of a patient's story um uh, which is oftentimes um just as dramatic though quieter
2: So how do you do that? I mean, I think, I mean, I know you teach doctors, you, um, and I mean, I think it's so important, the wisdom that you are, you know, sharing. As a former teacher of family medicine, I think one of my jobs was to help doctors ask the questions, because sometimes they weren't really well trained. They knew a a lot how to, to get to a diagnosis. But when it came to issues we're talking about, I think they're doing better in medical school now, aren't they, than they used to in terms of talking about those issues, but they're still difficult.
3: Yeah, they're hard, right? And, and you know, I think we talked about this earlier, uh, Elaine, in that there's there's something that they can't replace experience, you know, and reflective experience, right? When you reflect upon, God, I could have done that better um, uh, and think about what you've done wrong and what you did right. But what I found the most interesting is that the things, the situation that scared me when I came out of my training, which really had to do with like life and death stuff, would I know how to, you know, when someone came in with um, with, their, with their heart stop, would I know what to do? Um, if they were had difficulty breathing and they needed an area, would they know what to do? A bad trauma, would I know what to do? Um, and I, I did. You know they were terrifying don't get me wrong but I, but the most part I knew how to respond like I had the skills I was trained well um by people um above me but oftentimes these particular situations were the problems were explicit and the steps to respond were well known if not algorithmic right
2: yes ABCD right and then okay i did that okay that or, worked but then
3: or, or at least a or b like you had like you you had as <laughs> i right. had certain things that were set out you knew what to do you knew how to take the situation and you knew how to respond to it but the big challenges are ones when patients are sometimes telling you stories that are you know all either all over the place um or they're not they're not anywhere they're withholding they're tight-lipped um and you have to you have to be alert to what's between the lines of what of what patients are telling you and and i feel that what i do as a teacher is is if i'm not, I, I feel like i'm not telling our students and our residents anything they don't already know you know if you were at a restaurant or at a bar and taste and someone and a friend or someone you meet is telling you a story and you and it was unclear or there were questions, whatever, you'd be curious, you'd be asking questions, you know, you might be alert to body language, you might be alert to huh, like can you what do you mean by that word? Um but I find that that those very human elements that have been with us for you know, for thousands of years, like stories, we've been telling stories to each other and we've been using stories to understand ourselves, to understand the world, to understand each other. For thousands of years, so it feels, it feels, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take credit for saying I'm going to teach you how to like understand stories. What I am going to do is give you permission to think differently and to think the way you are to tap into that person who you are um, and um, and give you permission to hopefully find your voice and to honor your voice and to be you.
2: Well, I think, you know, when I hear you say that, I mean, you have a very compassionate stance, an empathic stance of how you're approaching um, the young doctors and medical students. But I, I think that's one of the hard things. though, as I, I see people sometimes lose their compassion and their empathy. And I think that's when, as we started to talk in the beginning of the hour, is why sometimes people say, I can't do this anymore. It's because the very thing that they used to love and the reason why they went into medicine and healthcare, that they don't feel that they've lost that, that, that juice of compassion of being able to say what you just said about being able to listen with empathy to someone's story who's suffering.
3: But also, Elaine, you have to, I I have to come (laughs) clean. There are, I mean, when I talk about like people being complex, excuse me, characters be complex, I'm one of those characters. You know, so, you know, to be able to have truly honest discussions about how we behave and how we respond in challenging situations, it's easy. We have to be. Honest about the context, right? So it's easy for me right now to be, to talk to you about in an empathic way. And for you to say, oh, I think Jay's a pretty compassionate guy. I'd like to think I'm a compassionate guy. However, you know, you get me at three in the morning or four in the morning during like my second overnight shift when I hadn't slept in a while or I'm hungry, um, you know, it could be very different. Sometimes I am. Um, but the point is, is, that there are times I've been so compassionate and sometimes I feel like I should have behaved better in the same shift, you know? Well,
2: so all you're telling me now, Jay, you still got me because now you're talking to me about your humility. And I think that those of us that do this, I hope, you know, fairly well know that, we're, we, that we have been on our knees. We have been at times going, I can't take one more minute but i think that in my in my experience i think if we have that reflection that that doesn't become our achilles heel that actually can empower us to start thinking just like when you wrote the letter of doing things differently i don't know does that make sense to you what i'm saying yeah it does
3: and and listen Nick, we're like like so many of us and i include myself i mean we're 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 hurting <laughs> um you know you go to work and it's when you're when you're Unable to move patients because of hospital crowding. Um, and when, you know, when you go to work and you get yelled at, um, and sometimes deservingly so, because I would be yelling too, maybe, if I was waiting the amount of hours that many of these people have been waiting for. Um, but, you know, it's it's really hard, Lane, and uh, and I I don't have easy answers for that, and I haven't figured it out. You know i haven't figured it out because like, there are days that i come home and i'm like i can't do this anymore i'm one of those people and then you know you just sit there and you sort of you sometimes you shrug back to work and sometimes you feel much better and stronger but you know for many of us like we haven't recovered like i one of the questions i always love is people say like so how are you doing like it must be great that you know the pandemic's over and i'm like we're broken like we everyone you know so many people had a chance to recover or even had we we didn't you know it's three years now um and the system is worse and the patients are sicker like we talked to you know we talked a little bit earlier about you know where where are we now it was and as you know the, the the amount of patients with mental health is issues has skyrocketed gone up during the yeah. pandemic and it was a problem before the pandemic substance use has gone up um during the pandemic um violence so,
2: do you, so have trauma you,
3: has gone up as yes, well it has. right um violence inter you know <laughs> interpersonal violence societal community violence and also violence against healthcare workers
2: so it's it's there's a a landscape that sounds pretty scary when you describe it that way, and and so and again that the entry point to the hospital system and for many of these folks is the emergency room.
1: Right. So
2: I mean, and I you know you're clearly saying, and I mean I think it would be hard. I mean if you did know all the answers, you would you know. Probably be God, <laughs> <I mean, laughs> you'd be God or something. We would be having a different conversation. <laughs> that's right. Jay Bruce answering, <laughs> the
3: yes. the healthcare crisis. Say
2: so that's right, but I guess that's what I'm saying. That so, how do we? How do we continue? How do we keep going? I mean, I think when you talked about your letter in the beginning and those moments of reflection, I mean, for those folks that are still saying this is tough, I haven't recovered, but I'm still in it, and that's what I'm hearing from you. So, so can just kind of you can talk more about that. Yeah. So,
3: so. So I, I am not a health policy person. Okay, I am an on the ground, in the mud, um, uh, health
2: hands hands dirty and a, narr- and a yes. narrative guy. Yes. Right?
3: And um, but I but I also think that those are the those are the positions that we need to address the challenge, because if we think about it from we have to change the healthcare care system, which I think we do, I think we have to re, reimagine what what it, what we mean by healthcare care and what we mean by patient-centered care. Because right now, you know, we talk about it all the time, but the system seems to value profits and seems to value, you know, political agendas, at least value a lot of things. And patients seem to become commodities right now, um, at least from a system perspective. So I I don't have the expertise or the power um, to even begin to imagine those system-wide changes. And the reason why I mentioned that is because when you think about it from that perspective, it can seem kind of hopeless, right? However, when you're on the ground, you realize who you depend upon, you know? And in a way, like I value my colleagues that much mm-hmm. more since the pandemic, mm-hmm. my nurses, my techs, you know, unit secretaries, everyone. I mean, I'm so grateful for them. And so many of them have left and it breaks my heart. Um, not only because they left and I don't really have a chance to work with them anymore and not because they were just, they were great nurses or staff. Um, and they were funny and they were wonderful and they were caring and they had 15 years of experience, which, which makes them like gold you know you can't replace that you cannot replace that but because these are people you sort of trust who know you who know the patients they know our community they know the hospital system and the hospitals depend upon people who know how to navigate its inefficiencies <laughs> right or they go know around the personalities. them
2: or they it's know how to that- ask for forgiveness rather than permission in right. order to get things done right i Certainly seen this,
3: and it's about patience, you know, because there's all these things that can't be done. Getting back to my an earlier topic we had earlier, but we still have to care for patients. Patients are still coming to the emergency department in droves, you know, and they're hurting and they're sicker than they've ever been. And their problems are multi-layered. It's not just medical problems. It's social problems, like you said. It could be substance use problems. It could be mental health problems. It could be all those things. It could be, I can't care for my loved one anymore. I, I mean, I can't care for him because I have three jobs, and I can't care for my father who has dementia. Um, it, It's so complicated, and people need help. So I think we have to start at, like, how how can we help patients? How can we truly start from being saying we are supposed to be a patient-centered profession and it's a profession with a moral compass with a moral imperative and when we get away from that and we truly want to embrace a business ethic you know which is business interests are driving medicine more and more then i don't think society wants that like they need us to be moral and to be ethical as much as we can
2: well you know and it's Right, and it gets into that you know that question about uh, healthcare being a right or a privilege. And so, if it's a right, then it's there's more equity in how it's distributed, and also the accessibility that it's really public health to have a solid mental health system. And that if we look at, for example, we split the mind and the body, which I think we did and we've done in America and in many places around the world then if you have a mental health, you know, problem, then the mental health person has to treat you. Although you know in the emergency room, you know, what is the percentage of people with mental health challenges that have an acute problem that come to the emergency room? Many places around the country, it's very high because there's no place to go.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 you know, and I I don't know. I mean, I I I don't think that when patients come into the emergency department with a mental health problem because they have no other place to go or because we're open and because they need to be there, right? Like, of times, like, listen, you're, you're an extremist. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt somebody else, or you're involved in some kind of dangerous activity. You're at risk. Come, we want you. We want you there. And, um, but there are so many of our mental, we like, don't, our mental health providers are oftentimes so overwhelmed themselves. Like they're, like they're overworked um and our social workers <laughs> overworked people who will be doing the work of trying to find people housing or trying to find them um detox centers or or uh, um or help for their or for substance use that are complicated medical problems and we're just not investing the resources to to the downstream resources to get these people the help that they need so they don't have to come to the er but also about the idea about healthcare care is a right versus healthcare care is a privilege you know, I don't know, Elaine. I mean, when I have a patient who comes in with their blood sugar out of control with diabetes and they come in because they can't afford their insulin and they're doling it out in little droves so they don't it's, go It's into heart- it's heartbreak
2: it's heartbreaking.
3: That's that's it's heartbreaking. Like, this is not a privilege. This is about you need you, you need, need to have insulin. You need to be healthy enough to 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 be to care for the loved ones that you have to be to function to to be to have your identity to fulfill your identity and who you are um and it breaks my heart when we have basic understanding and basic knowledge about certain things and we have patients like diabetes or high blood pressure
2: and, and patients, we have lack of accessibility to the and medicine
3: lack of accessibility oh, or yeah. drugs that are too expensive for patients
2: so That's let something. me let me ask you this you know in I can see our time is quickly slipping away, but I really want to hear from you in terms of your book. And I know you talked about creativity in working. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get back to that. The creativity (laughs) of working with the constraints, because obviously you've had to have it to be able to continue to do what you do. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's, is that part of like maybe the ideas of what we can do so that we can make a difference with how crazy the system is?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many, you know, there's so many different constraints, you know, especially in the emergency department. It's, you know, it's seeing, seeing so many patients simultaneously and caring for them at the same time. It's having a lack of time. Um, it's about making some critical decisions and trying to connect with patients oftentimes with minimal amount of information or incomplete information. Um, and then there's sort of emotional constraints, like we talked about, you know, there's the constraints of like our compassions, like sometimes I'm, my my compassion tank is a little bit low um and sometimes the constraints is being put in morally perilous positions right when you know what the right thing to do is and and the situation and the system just doesn't allow you to do that um so there's many different levels of constraints i think the creativity piece comes in elaine in in our stance and how we approach it right so you know i think thinking about patients stories um uh, not as like patients aren't faces with information um but expe- but these bodies with experiences um and and they tell their stories patients tell their stories out of bodies that are sometimes scared uh, anxious worried terrified um You know, what's at risk is not just their not just their health, but also their identity and their relationship to to who they were and who they might be or what they become. So being more creative about trying to understand what the patient's needs are. Um, and sometimes, you know, you come with a heart attack. I gotta, I better, I better identify that heart attack and respond to that appropriately. But if you come in with a chronic problem, you know, I never say patients have nothing because their presence in the emergency department is a narrative event. Like you left your house, you left wherever to come to the ER. So try to share that experience. And it's sort of my job to figure out what is that? What is that experience that you're going through at this point in time? And how do I respond to it in a meaningful way? Sometimes that's simply giving patients the recognition, um, and the the validation that I'm listening to your story and, um, and acknowledging the fact that you're either doing great, you're doing a great, or that you're perhaps, you know, going through a tough time, and we recognize that.
2: Well, Jay, I can say by listening to you speak, that what you're reminding me of is that you are conveying our common humanity. And that you're seeing them as human beings. And that means that at that moment, as though you're, you are the physician and there's things you have to do, but that at that moment, you're human to human and remembering how we have a common humanity together, which is, I really, I'm so glad to meet you and to know you and hear about your work. Because I imagine there, as much as there are times when any one of us in healthcare want to say, I'm out of here, or I don't know if I have an ounce of compassion left, yet we keep coming back. And we keep trying to figure out ways to make it better so that we can care for people. And I'm certainly hearing that for you. So I want people to know how to get in touch with you if they would like to get in touch with you. So can you tell us your website? Sure. How would they do that?
3: Um, it's um, www.jbaruch.com. J-A-Y-B-A-R-U-C-H, one word.com. All right, and There's let's say, let's
2: hear you say the name of your book one more time. I always love to hear the or my guests say the name of their book.
3: Uh, it's Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER.
2: And so I hope that everyone goes out and picks it up. Now, they can get it on Amazon and places like that. Yes.
3: Independent bookstores, wherever.
2: Well, I want to say that... Um, Jay, you're reminding me about um, one of my missions in life, and that is even when there's chaos and suffering, that they're also what else is true. And I mean, I can't imagine what you went through and that your team went through during the pandemic. But what I'm hearing you now is that you've, you're have you still going and you're try, still trying still to going. figure it out. And you're, look at that. If you could all see him, he has a big smile on his face. He's still trying to figure it out. And I think that you know brings me to my statement of like that common humanity that we have, um, and that you certainly have. And um, I imagine when people come through your ER, that they are blessed to have you. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you so much, Elaine. This has been an absolute treat and a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So my listeners, remember we'll be here next 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 time. Remember what else is true in the world remember the kind the ways that we're linked together as human beings that there is a common humanity and i think we've just heard about the suffering today but we've also sh- heard about how if we do a deep listen and really pay attention to another person how not only is their journey changed but so is ours so this is elaine miller caris signing off for voice of america resiliency within thank you all
0: resiliency within. With host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.